Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Tom Moran, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm joined today by my associate, Justin Thatch. Good afternoon. As always, we like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. And we ask that you pass along our contact info to any colleagues who you think might be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 62 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from any one of our multiple platforms. That could be on the Surety Today web page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Uh, you just search for Surety Today, or on our microsite at suretytoday.net. Now, as always, we have muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. We're here today to discuss bad faith claims against the surety, uh, whether by an obligee or payment bond claimant, and we're also going to include a brief discussion of the indemnitor's bad faith defense to the surety's indemnity claims. In, in taking on this topic, we realize that many jurisdictions don't recognize the, these types of bad faith claims, but even if you practice or handle claims exclusively in states that are non-bad faith, it's worth understanding the basic concepts and how to avoid liability. Why? Well, a couple reasons come to mind. First, as we all know, bad facts can make bad law. If you're presented with an unusual or a particularly difficult set of circumstances on a default or a thorny payment bond claim, you don't want to have the first case in your jurisdiction where the court awarded damages against a surety for bad faith or similar unfair claim settlement practices. Second, many of the suggestions we're going to give today are simply good practice and will facilitate good outcomes even if bad faith liability isn't on the table. So today I'm going to start by going over some of the basic concepts relating to bad faith liability, including the ways in which liability can be imposed and certain prohibited conduct. Then Justin will lead you through an overview of some of the, some of the most important and recent case law impacting sureties. And finally, if we have time, I'll discuss some practical approaches that will help avoid the specter of bad faith liability if you're dealing with a claim in a jurisdiction that imposes that liability on sureties. The courts that recognize surety bad faith draw it from two primary sources of authority, common law and statute. Regardless of the source, these concepts are borrowed from those established in the context of traditional liability insurance. Of course, typical liability insurers have bilateral, bilateral contracts. They receive premium with the understanding that there will be risk in the form of a valid claim, and the policyholder that paid for the policy is entitled to the coverage it bargained for without a lot of struggle. So an insurer's obligations only run in one direction, but as we all know from the Perlman case, suretyship is not insurance. A surety doesn't only have obligations to the obligee for whose benefit the bond is written, it has a responsibility to ensure that it is not simply paying claims in bad faith, which would jeopardize its indemnity rights, as Justin will go into later, or without investigation. 
The tripartite relationship between a surety, obligee, and principal, and the secondary nature of the surety's liability to the obligee kind of leave a round hole square peg dynamic when courts have applied insurance bad faith concepts to sureties. But that hasn't stopped some courts from trying. Uh, first, getting into the common law aspect, just about every jurisdiction recognizes the existence of a duty of good faith and fair dealing that's inherent in every contract. Each party that enters into a contract does so with the expectation that it will realize a benefit as a result. A party is not permitted to act in bad faith to interfere with its counterpart's right to obtain that benefit. So in the insurance context, this right initially was limited to contractual damages, but as the case law developed, the majority of jurisdictions established a tort claim for bad faith, allowing collection of punitive damages and attorney's fees. The basis for liability and tort is the special relationship between an insured and its insurer based on unequal bargaining power, as well as the sophistication and resources of the insurer. So in essence, the theory behind this traditional um, theory is that when you buy a policy, you are supposed to receive coverage and not a massive fight over irrelevant issues that you might not have considered when you bought the policy. But in carrying the bad faith concept over to surety, some courts have analogized surety to insurance by comparing the obligee to a policyholder. In essence, the obligee is considered to be a third-party beneficiary of the promise obtained by the principal when, premium, when, when the bond premium was paid. Some courts have also held that insurance is sufficiently similar to surety such that the same rules should be applied to both. And other courts believe that the surety needs an incentive to pay valid claims rather than routinely deny them and dare the client to file suit. So the standard for applying common law bad faith liability to sureties varies by jurisdiction, but for the most part, something more than basic negligence or bad judgment is required. The standards contemplate dishonest purpose, words like ill will, behavior that the surety knows is unreasonable, or conscious wrongdoing. So while a surety generally doesn't stand to be hit with common law bad faith simply by inaction, the lack of, lack of responsiveness or failure to investigate can be an aggravating factor if the surety is accused of other acts that show an improper motive. Referring to the statutory aspect, uh, generally the Unfair Claim Settlement Practices Act does not apply to sureties which are explicitly excluded from the scope of the Model Act. However, states vary in their application of the Model Act, only incorporating some of it or varying some of its terms. For those states where it's unclear whether the claim settlement statute applies to sureties, and especially in states where a court has ruled that it does apply, it, it's crucial to know the practices that can be punished. Um, under the Act, there are about 15 categories of prohibitive behavior. Most of them are spelled out in the Act and in the state-specific statutes, and there are one or two more that have been added by states or otherwise simply smart to avoid. I'm going to, when I go through them, they're going to be paraphrased to aid in the discussion, but you should always consult, of course, the relevant Act and the jurisdiction where the claim is pending for the pertinent language. A lot of, and a lot of these categories are also going to be relevant to any common law bad faith determination. The first is knowing, knowing misrepresentation of relevant facts or policy provisions relevant to coverage. So if you're telling an obligee what the terms of the bond say or you're relating facts that you learned about the project from a consultant or the principal, you need to be sure that you're getting your facts straight. The second category is failing to acknowledge pertin pertinent communications relating to claims with reasonable promptness. 
So on this one, you need to make sure that your paper trail communications is in order. Um, save and archive those emails. Take notes of phone conversations. If you need more documents or access uh, to reach a decision or to consider a plan of action, say so in an email and confirm that the recipient is going to undertake efforts to cooperate. Set calendar reminders to respond to an inquiry within two to three days or even sooner if necessary under the circumstances. The third category is failing to adopt reasonable standards for prompt investigation and resolution of claims. We all know that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach for dealing with a performance bond claim, but there are basic guidelines that, that can be adopted. Uh, Timeframes can be established for a response once the, once the initial supporting documents have been requested and received. Meetings with the principal, site visits, books and records reviews, wh whatever is required under the circumstances, um, it, it's, it's good to have a general set of guidelines, even though, even though every project is ultimately different. The next category is not attempting to effectuate prompt, fair, and equitable settlement of claims where liability is reasonable, reasonably clear. This is what I call the lost cause provision. Uh, if your principal has just fallen on its face, it clearly can't complete the job, isn't paying its subs and suppliers, or it has obviously defective work, um, and there's no valid purpose that would be served by denial of the claim or failing to select from the performance options under the bond, you can't simply hide your head in the sand. You have to act to deal with the claim, and you can't just fight a lost cause to make life difficult for the obligee. The next category is compelling the insured to file suit uh, to recover amounts due by offering substantially less than the amount ultimately recovered. This is the lowball rule. Uh, this may not be as applicable in the performance bond context, but certainly would apply in responding to a payment bond claim if you're otherwise in a, in a bad faith jurisdiction. So be careful in offering a low sum to resolve a payment bond claim. Make sure there's a justifiable basis for the amount you're offering. Um, what, that could be whether there's a dispute over the value of the services or materials provided, or if there's some problem with documentation that would create risk for the claimant if litigation was pursued, or if there's some wiggle room created by a questionable notice um, under the bond or under statute. Um, when you're citing any one of these, you'll want to document the reasons for the number in the offer letter and reserve your rights as to other defenses and arguments, of course. Next is refusing to pay claims without conducting a reasonable investigation. What is reasonable under the circumstances? Uh, certainly you need to determine why the obligee isn't happy with what's happening on the project and why the principal is struggling. You need to reach out and get the principal's view um, and positions on various issues, ideally getting documents from both the principal and the obligee. And often a qualified engineering consultant will be needed to get to the job site to view the affected work and interview key personnel. Sometimes you may run into an obligee that refuses to take the time to support its claim with documents, saying it's your problem now, deal with it. And while that's frustrating, depending on the language of the bond and the jurisdiction, that may be justified. So always be aware of the language of the bond and how it affects the lengths to which you'll be required to go to properly investigate the claim. Next, we have failing to affirm or deny coverage within a reasonable time after investigation is complete. So on this one, you can't rest on your laurels. Once you've obtained the documents you've asked for, you've completed your site visit, if you're doing one, and interviewed key personnel, you have to move swiftly to reach a decision on which course of performance to select under the bond or whether to simply deny coverage and invite a lawsuit. 
Again, a reasonable time is going to depend largely on the size and complexity of the project and the cooperativeness of others. This is another reason, um, as kind of a, a, a side point, this is another reason why the ordinary bad faith rules just aren't a good fit in the surety context. In life insurance, auto accidents, casualty, many claims are, are straightforward and they turn on a few well-worn factual patterns and common policy provisions. But if you're listening to this podcast, you know that every construction project is different. Uh, different specs, different site conditions, different owners, different people involved, et cetera. So a one-size-fits-all rule is impossible. The next category is attempting to settle or settling claims for less than amounts to which reference was made in advertising material accompanying the application. This one probably isn't relevant in the surety context as obviously the principal making the application is not the party that's going to be asserting a claim. Uh, the next is attempting to settle or settling claims on the basis of applications that were materially altered. Um, also probably not applicable for the same reason. It, it should be obvious that nothing on a principal's app should be altered without consent. Next, we have making claim payments to insureds or beneficiaries without indicating the coverage under which each payment has been made. So this could be applicable in a multiple default scenario. Say your principal is working on several projects for the same obligee. Anytime you make payment to an obligee or another party under the bond, make sure there's some writing, whether there's a release, takeover agreement, completion agreement, ratification, or just a transmittal letter that documents which project and specifically which obligation the payment applies to. If you're issuing a check, document that info on the check if possible. Um, next is unreasonably delaying the investigation by requiring a formal proof of loss form and subsequent verification that would duplicate the info. This is another one that's probably only relevant in the realm of payment bond claims. So if you're using a proof of claim form, and you should, uh, make sure that you review what's attached to it by the claimant and that you're not repeating requests for info that have already been responded to. Be up to date on the state of your file. Next, we have failing in, in the case of claim denials or offers of compromise settlements to provide a reasonable and accurate explanation of the basis. If you're denying a claim, say why. Cite the specific bond provision or contract provision you're relying on with quotes if possible. If you're closing your file after not hearing back from a claimant despite a request for information, send a letter saying so. The next one is failing to, failing to provide forms necessary to present claims within a certain number of days along with reasonable explanations on their use. Again, not particularly relevant when dealing with a sophisticated obligee, but when you're dealing with a payment bond claimant, keep in mind that you may be dealing with a sub or a laborer that has never had to submit a claim before. Send a letter along with the proof of claim form and make it clear that the info and documents need to be accurate and up to date and explain that what's provided will be used in evaluating the extent to which the claim will be paid. Um, next is failing to adopt standards to ensure repairs are performed in a workmanlike manner. Um, this is more applicable to property or casualty policies, not, not to the surety. Uh, and next is one that doesn't appear in the model statute, but it appears in a lot of the state statutes that are modeled on it. Uh, having a policy of appealing from arbitration awards in favor of claimants for the purpose of compelling them to accept settlements or compromises less than the award. 
We often think of arbitration awards as being unappealable, but when I was at the Perlman Conference last week during a very good point-counterpoint presentation on arbitration, I was reminded that issues can be reserved for appeal by agreement ahead of time. If you do that uh, and you get an unfavorable outcome in arbitration, you can't use the right of appeal as a sword in order to broker a compromise. The next is another one that's been added uh, either by courts or by specific jurisdictions, and it's delaying claim settlement where liability has become reasonably clear as to one portion of coverage in order to influence settlement under other portions. So if there's one part of a claim that's undisputed, you can't drag your feet on it to strong arm the claimant as to, as to portions that are disputed. Move swiftly to get the undisputed portion resolved and leave the fight to the parts um, that are disputed. Now, a lot of these may seem elementary, and for the most part, they are, but that's kind of the point. These bad faith rules, where they are applicable, set a baseline for tolerable conduct by the sureties. Now, I'll turn the mic over to Justin, who will discuss in more detail some of the relevant and recent case law impacting the sureties' potential bad faith liability, uh, as, as well as the sureties' bad faith, or as well as the principal's potential bad faith defense to a surety's indemnity claims. Okay, thank you, Tom. Um, and I think as I go through a few cases here in this um, topic area regarding the surety and bad faith, um, a lot of it will, will parallel kind of what Tom was just talking about. Um, and I think those factors that he went through, especially in jurisdictions um, that might not have clear-cut rules about whether these types of claims can be brought against sureties are important and things that the courts um, will consider. Um, but I'll just again echo a point that Tom made before getting into these cases that uh, it's always important to know um, if you handle a lot of claims in certain jurisdictions what your jurisdiction's um, kind of law is with respect to surety and bad faith. Uh, but also, as Tom said, if you're in a jurisdiction um, that may be silent uh, as to whether these claims can be brought or not, it is important to consider some of these policies and laws from some of these other states. Um, so first, I'm going to talk about uh, a common law case. Um, and it's an important one, one of which uh, a lot of you may already know. Um, from California called Cates Construction Inc. versus Talbot Partners. Um, and the citation, if anyone wants to look it up, is 21 Cal 4th 28. Um, and it's a Supreme Court of California case. Um, generally, it deals with a common law claim of bad faith against a surety. And to simplify the facts down a bit, and before I go any further, I would recommend uh, anyone tuning in today to, to read this whole case because I think it is a very good discussion on this issue. But this case involved the surety's liability to a real estate developer uh, on an alleged default of its general contractor on a condominium project. Basically, a dispute arose between the owner and the GC regarding payment. Um, Cates, the GC, sought additional money from the owner uh, that the owner refused to pay. Uh, alleging that the owner had already, the owner alleged that it had already paid several hundred thousand dollars to the GC more than the cost of the work. Cates, the GC, threatened to abandon the project due to this non-payment, and the owner made demand on the surety to perform. The surety took the position that the owner breached the contract by failing to pay the GC and that it would not perform under the bond, deciding or citing to this uh, good faith dispute between the parties as to who breached the contract. 
Um, interestingly, the, the, the trial was bifurcated or separated out into two parts. Um, first, there was the contract side, and the court ultimately found uh, in the owner's favor that Kate, the GC, um, and the surety were liable to the owner for the principal's breaches of the contract. Uh, that was a result to which the surety generally um, did not object. Uh, there were a few um, delay charges and things that were the subject of appeal, but generally I think the surety had, did not object to being on the hook for some sum of money. However, uh, the owner also brought a claim against the surety in tort uh, for breach of the, good, uh, the duty of good faith and fair dealing. Now, as I said, I think what this case is well known for is it provides an excellent discussion of the distinction between insurance and surety ship, some of which Tom discussed with us a little earlier. Um, and this is important because the insurer-insured relationship is a limited exception to the rule that recovery for a non-breaching party to a contract is the remedies provided by that contract. Therefore, and if an insurer acts in bad faith in failing to honor its insurance contract, it can be liable in tort for additional damages, including possible punitive damages. Therefore, the owner in this case sought to apply that theory to a contract bond surety. Now, kind of the first point the court looked at was that in California, like in other states, suretyship was listed under the insurance code of the state statutes as a class of insurance. While the court goes through some great analysis that is worth reading in full, it sums up the issue by stating, quote, Although suretyship is listed in the insurance code as a class of insurance, it does not follow that a surety bond equates to a policy of insurance under the common law or common law theories of liability. Nor does it follow that the unique policy reasons which justify extraordinary remedies in the insurance policy context are similarly implicated for bonds guaranteeing the performance of a commercial construction contract." End quote. Um, also on this topic and on a related note, I particularly like this quote in a, in a separate case from the North Carolina Court of Appeals um, in which he was responding to an argument about how suretyship is often considered, quote, in the nature of insurance. And the court said in response to that, quote, but this, of course, no more justifies the conclusion that sureties are insurers and performance bonds are contracts of insurance then does the commonly known fact that sheep are somewhat like goats justify the conclusion that sheep are goats, end quote. Um, so I just kind of found that humorous. Um, and I, I, I personally, as a lawyer, like when judges get a little bit cheeky about comments like that. But I think it raised a very solid point. Um, moving back to the, to the Cates case, and again, this was something that Tom discussed briefly, it looked at kind of the policy side of the equation to define that performance bonds were not marked by the same elements of adhesion and une unequal bargaining power, public interest, and fiduciary responsibility that characterize insurance policies. Um, basically, the court found that the project owner in the surety context is in a lot stronger position in the marketplace uh, than in typical insured is under an insurance contract. Lastly, uh, the court looked at some of the consequences of what would happen on imposing bad faith liability on sureties. The court found that, quote, making tort remedies available may encourage obligees to allege a principal's default more readily than they would in the absence of such remedies. And it would make it easier, quote, to pressure sureties into paying questionable default claims or paying more on properly disputed claims. The court 
The court also feared that the threat of tort liability would give obligees additional leverage over sureties that it did not have over principles that would ultimately harm principles, um, mainly in the area of bonds, uh, the cost of bonding to go up to those principles. Overall, the court found that there was no claim for bad faith and tort against a surety in California. Um, and this case has been cited by other courts and other jurisdictions for the same proposition. Um, and it is found to be particularly persuasive as California was actually uh, a pioneering jurisdiction in terms of recognizing bad faith claims in the insurance context. Um, therefore, I think that kind of gave this decision some added weight as California kind of trailblazed in terms of opening up bad faith to insurers, but kind of closed that door with respect to sureties. Um, next, uh, briefly, I want to look at a case that kind of uh, highlights the statutory side of things that, that Tom discussed. And this one comes from Georgia. Now, Georgia, uh, in its uh, code, you know, specifically Section 10-7-30, has a statute that states in relevant part, quote, in the event of the refusal of a corporate surety to commence the remedy of a default covered by, to make payment to an obligee under or otherwise commence a performance in accordance with the terms of a contract of suretyship within 60 days after receipt from the obligee of a notice of default or demand for payment, and upon finding that such refusal is in bad faith, the surety shall be liable to pay such obligee in addition to the loss, not more than 25% of the liability of the surety for the loss, and all reasonable attorney's fees for the prosecution of the case against the surety. So that gives you an example right there of a, of a jurisdiction that has codified in its statutes um, kind of bad faith surety policy. And in there, in, if bad faith is found, imposes a 25% penalty and a reasonable attorney's fees provision. Now, in the case of United States versus All-American Building Systems, Inc., this is 857 FSUP 69 from the Northern District of Georgia in 1994. Um, there was a Miller Act payment bond claim that was brought against a contractor and its surety. Now, in addition to that Miller Act payment bond claim, in, in count two of the complaint, the subcontractor sought recovery of the statutory penalty and its attorney's fees under the statute I just read you above. Um, however, relying on a previous case, the court found that, quote, because Congress did not intend to incorporate state law with respect to the award of fees in a Miller Act case, the recovery of any state law penalties would not be allowed, end quote. Now, this stemmed from the Supreme Court's F.D. Rich decision that explained that the remedies available in a Miller Act case are determinable by federal and not state law. In that case, the Supreme Court said, quote, the Miller Act provides a federal cause of action and the scope of the remedy as well as the substance of the rights created thereby is a matter of federal, not state law. Therefore, um, even in states that allow statutory bad faith claims against sureties in those contexts, um, that relief cannot be added on to a federal Miller Act claim. Um, so something to keep in mind there. Um, lastly, as Tom said, the final area I want to touch on briefly is in the indemnity context. Um, basically, it goes that a surety in seeking indemnity against its indemnitors cannot recover for payments made in bad faith. Um, essentially, the indemnitor can raise the surety's bad faith as an affirmative defense to an indemnity claim. 
One example of this argument um, is from the recent case, a uh, federal case out of Alabama in 2018, Developer Surety and Indemnity Company versus Renewal Maintenance and Construction, Inc. Um, basically, this was a case where the surety settled a performance bond claim with the obligee for, for $400,000. Um, and the, the indemnitor principal felt like there were some valid defenses and that the, the matter should, shouldn't have been settled. Um, but there was some, some good recitation in this case uh, from the law with respect to this bad faith indemnity issue. Um, and the court pointed out first that, quote, the mere payment of claims, even those for which the principal has a valid defense, does not amount to bad faith. Uh, likewise, the court observed that gross negligence or self-interest is not synonymous with bad faith in the, in the indemnity context. Rather, bad faith means a dishonest purpose, a conscious wrongdoing, or a breach of duty motivated by self-interest or ill will. An um, example is that the surety acted with deliberate malfeasance, and it, which is an intentional wrongful act, or any wrongful conduct which affects, interrupts, or interferes with the performance of an official legal duty. Um, the court further observed a surety's failure to conduct an adequate investigation of a claim upon a bond when, when accompanied by other evidence reflecting an improper motive properly may be considered as evidence of the surety's bad faith. Um, so that was one of the factors that Tom touched on there regarding um, conducting adequate inve investigations of claims. Um, the, the point I found interesting out of these, and it's an interesting point that arise, arose both out of this case and others, is that in order to bring a bad faith defense in an indemnity context, the indemnitor must comply with all its obligations under the indemnity agreement. In this case and others, like Employers Insurance of Wausau v. Abel Green, Inc., 749 F SUP 1100, um, these cases, the indemnity agreements, like many, contain clauses allowing the principal to request the surety litigate the claims and or post collateral on demand. In both of these cases, the indemnitors failed to post the collateral on demand of the surety. Because of this, the defense of bad faith is not available. Uh, and as these, the court said, quote, if an indemnitor fails to post contractually required collateral, a surety's paying or settling a claim cannot amount to bad faith, end quote. Or said a little more generally, quote, federal courts within the 11th Circuit, in this case, have held that a bad faith defense is not available to a principal slash indemnitor who fails to post collateral upon demand under an, under an indemnification agreement, end quote. So uh, in addition to kind of the claim context, as, as we uh, discussed earlier, you may see bad faith also arise uh, in the indemnity context to the extent the principal tries to, to raise the specter of bad faith um, in defense that to the amounts paid by the surety uh, that are now being sought against the indemnitors. Um, but as those cases point out there, uh, it's another kind of helpful arrow in the quiver there with the collateral demand uh, in that, at least in, in those jurisdictions, that if the surety demands collateral and the uh, principal slash indemnitors fail to provide it, it forecloses that ability to bring um, the or raise the bad faith as a defense uh, to those indemnity claims. So with that, I'll pass it back over to Tom. All right, thanks, Justin. Uh, looks like we're running a little short on time, um, so we're not going to get to the more general tips that I'm prepared for avoiding bad faith liability. Um, however, those are going to be posted along with the other literature. 
um, on, on our Surety Today site, and so you can peruse those at, at, if, if you'd like to do so. Um, before I open the line up for any questions, I want to let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, October 11th, 2021 at 1230 Eastern Time. Uh, as for upcoming events with COVID and the Delta variant, we don't know what's going to happen, but as it stands now, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its first in-person lunch meeting since the pandemic started on Wednesday, September 22nd. Also, coming up just the following day on September 23rd, we want to let everyone know that as a proud co-sponsor of the Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference, the 2021 Northeast Conference will be held virtually just as it was last year. Hopefully you've received your invitation, but if not, please feel free to contact me or anyone else at Wright Constable and we will get the invitation to you. The conference actually kicks off the night before on September 22nd at 5 o'clock with a virtual trivia night. Join in and show off your trivia skills. And I know Justin will be there because he's a, he's a well-known trivia buff. Um, on the 23rd, the conference will be from 10 to 1.30. This year's conference will feature our own Cindy Rogers Ware and Mike Stover discussing surety claims and bankruptcy. Of course, there will be plenty of CLE and CE credits. We hope that you, that you can be with us. Thank you to everyone for joining us, and we look forward to speaking with you again next month. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll be back with another episode of Surety Today next month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety today.